This is the Scale with Psychology podcast, where you're going to optimize your psychology to exponentially scale your business and become the ultimate version of yourself. I'm your host, Ani Manian, widely known as the Mind Whisperer and trusted advisor and psychedelic therapist to the world's top entrepreneurs and leaders. And I believe that entrepreneurship is a mental game. And the main constraint in any business is not the strategies and tactics, but the psychology of the founder. And with each episode, I'm going to help you take your life in business to levels you never thought possible. If you're ready to play the game of life and business in God mode, then this is the podcast for you. For you today. My guest today, he's a veteran executive coach and a leadership coach with over two decades of experience advising, coaching CEOs and senior execs in companies of all sizes. He's a world-class expert on leadership development, and he's the creator of one of the most successful and respected leadership development programs in the world called the Integral Leadership Program. He's played a key role in pioneering the now popular fields of conscious business and conscious leadership. And he's helped hundreds of founders and senior executive teams scale their businesses to the tens and hundreds of millions. As the director of the Integral Institute's Business and Leadership Center, he's worked closely with Ken Wilbur and senior faculty to create a unifying theory of leadership to create the now famous Integral Leadership Model. He's co-founded the Stegen Leadership Academy and in 1999 with Rand Stegen to help businesses become a force for good and to popularize the concept of conscious leadership. He's used Integral Theory and Adult Development Theory to author the world-renowned Integral Leadership Program now in its 20th year with over 2,000 graduates. I'm pleased, delighted, and honored to present you, Brett Thomas. Hello there. (laughs) Hello, brothers and sisters. (laughs) Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Brett, you know, this conversation could take days, years, Um, But today, what we're really trying to do is focus on conscious leadership in times of crisis. Let's break that apart, right? Let's start with the word conscious. You know, this is a term that's been popularized recently, thanks to you. (laughs) Um, How should people think about consciousness when it comes to leadership in business and entrepreneurship? Well, I think... uh... Appropriately, the word conscious means many things to many different people. Um, And there are entire fields, including developmental psychology, uh, which I have a background in, that looks at how human intelligence and human consciousness uh, and humans mature. And so, you know, we mature over time and we become more conscious over time. And so there's a lot of different ways we can think of it. Uh, the individual can can mature as as he or she goes through stages of life and becomes progressively more conscious, more aware, aware of different things. People can can uh, mature over time morally, uh, uh, interpersonally, with emotional intelligence, certainly cognitively. And there's tons of models, and I won't bore you with all the academics. Um, but but everybody's not the same level of consciousness. Some everybody maybe has the potential to be the same level of consciousness. But some people are, you know, more mature 
in certain ways. Um, I know that when I think back on stages of my life, <laughs> I was far less mature and far less, you know, when I go back. So, so, so different people have different levels of awakening. Uh, and, and there's two sides to consciousness. One is non-dual realization. So to remember who you are, your true self, <laughs> and you're one with everything. And, and so that's the non-dual traditions. That's the spiritual awakening side. But there's a whole nother side, which is maturing psychologically. And they're two very different things. And they even form an XY in the Wilbur Combs matrix, and we won't get into all that stuff. But, but again, we have to allow for the fact that that word means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think what's important is just in terms of socially and culturally, if people just even care about that. Uh, some people have no interest in that term, and anything conscious basically might mean idealistic, liberal hippie. And I know business people who might share that perspective. Whereas many people identify with the word conscious. I, li I like to think that I'm somewhat awake and paying attention to what's happening. And I like to think that, that I care about other than only myself, egocentric consciousness and ethnocentric consciousness. For many of us to be conscious is I care about others that don't just share my religion and sexual persuasion or you know, my little part of the world or my egocentric family. So for many, being conscious is to care about others and to care about broader society, to care about uh, the environment to, to, and so on. So for those of us that I do identify, which I think is probably most of your listeners and viewers, we, we have, our circle of concern is a little bit larger, perhaps, to include others and other countries and other nations and other types of people and the environment and the ecosystem. And so we have a little bit more responsibility, I think, to try to have this larger circle. And for many of us, that, that's what it means to be conscious. But included in that is to accept the fact that not everybody shares our mindset and not everybody shares our circle of concern. And some people in some parts of the world and some parts of our town are more concerned egocentrically or ethnocentrically with their little circle. And we have, we need to include them too, if we are conscious. <laughs> and this is really the, the, one of the cornerstones of business that's so often misunderstood. You know, most people, they think of business as a vehicle for, you know, my own material growth, my own um, accumulation of resources, of, of money, of, um, of wealth. And, you know, that's a great side effect. But the vehicle of business really is something that requires a certain level of consciousness. And I would posit a higher level of consciousness because business is a way of creating and transferring value across borders. And there's a personal border, right? This is me as an individual and the border that is mediated by the membrane that is my skin. Then there's the border of my house. Right. And then there's the border of my community. There's a border of my state, my country. Um, and what business is, it's basically an entity that facilitates the transfer of value across these borders. And today we live in a, in a very globalized world. Um, and, you know, part of the reasons why we're in a crisis right now is that same globalization. But in this globalized world, we can transact across borders instantaneously. We can exchange goods and services. We can do business. Mm -hmm. And that is a fundamental frame which dissolves these boundaries. Because earlier, as hunter-gatherers, we may transact with a neighboring village, 
right? We'll exchange a goat for a chicken or whatever that might be. But today we're able to sort of transact without limits. We're actually quite limitless today, thanks to the financial system, thanks to the global you know, trade agreements and the way we can um, ship and move you know, in terms of logistics. So this conversation, this idea of consciousness is actually very, very, very crucial. I would say the most important to a business. But often, most people think of business in the exact opposite way, right? Which is me, 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 me. And even now, and we'll get to the crisis part, even now, the primary frame that a lot of entrepreneurs are probably adopting, and I know this because, you know, both you and I have been in contact with a lot of the people we coach, it's what's going to happen to my business? What's going to happen to my revenue? How am I going to pay my employees? Which is totally fair, right? But the frame needs to change into a higher level of consciousness. Because as Einstein said, you can't solve a problem from the same level of consciousness that created it. And we need to expand out so we can understand who we can actually serve, who we can actually help. What's changed in their world? What are the new problems that have emerged that we can solve? How do, how do our goods and services and products mm-hmm. need to shift, need to adapt? Mm-hmm. And that requires thinking outside of ourselves. That requires thinking outside of these boundaries, whether they're you know, um, geographic, whether they're social, whether they're psychographic, whether they're religious, whether they're you know, tied to nationhood. So that's conscious. Let's go to leadership. How do you define leadership? Because you're a pioneer in this field. Mm-hmm. What, what is leadership? You know, a lot of people define leadership as, you know, I influence people and it's my ability to influence them that makes me a leader. And a lot of people think that being a leader comes from the title I hold. What's leadership mm-hmm. to you and how has that definition evolved? It's a great question. So conventionally speaking, people think of, of leadership as a title, like you said, or a role. That's a very kind of traditional way to think of leadership, but that's one way to think of it. Who's in authority, um, uh, kind of a character or trait or a, a role, but it's really useful to think of it what, what leaders do. And so that's a really good place to start. What do leaders do? What is the act of leadership? It's basically widely accepted that leaders set direction. So, you know, they set a direction. We're going to go in this direction, right? And then leaders hopefully inspire and guide and influence others to move, you know, in a direction. Now that could be uh, physically, we're going to physically move from here to there, or metaphorically, we're going to move into the future where the future is a, a better state than the present, right? So we're going to change things. We're going to improve. Um, but in practice, actually, I just think of leadership as interpersonal psychology. It's an interpersonal phenomenon that involves influence. Okay. So you and I are leading each other right now. You know, we had a little talk at the beginning. You asked me, Hey, what are, what are some things? I mentioned a couple things and then you, that was me leading, guiding by, by offering a frame. And then you took that frame and launched the conversation and turned around and asked me questions. So we're always, you know, people, leadership is essentially influence. Now, what's really interesting about leadership is that it's a phenomenon. It's an interpersonal phenomenon with groups of people, even just two people, that involves influence, setting direction, guiding, 
But the way we think of it all depends on our perspective, because there's a whole kind of postmodern world out there that has adopted conscious business and conscious leadership that has a very postmodern worldview where there's really no such thing as leadership. Leadership just emerges from the group. So to the degree that there's leadership, it's co-arising and we're all leaders. That's a kind of relativistic, pluralistic, postmodern view, which works really great if you're dealing with other people who are postmodern. It's terrible if you're dealing with people who are traditional, because that's, that's totally demoralizing to a person who is traditional and who's looking for an authoritarian leadership style that has the title and tells me what to do because I just want to do a good job and please the leader. So, so what's really fascinating about leadership is a phenomenon that exists all everywhere. It's just an interpersonal phenomenon of, of influence, essentially, and setting direction. And so for people that are more postmodern, it's leadership and teamwork are really the same thing. It's an interpersonal dynamic of coordinating efforts. So leadership and teamwork are exactly the same. In fact, it's really helpful to substitute the word leadership for and use the word teamwork when you're dealing with people that are postmodern. Because people that are postmodern and pluralistic, a lot of our friends that have adopted conscious approaches and conscious capitalism and conscious leadership don't think of leadership as being a title. Again, it's just a phenomenon that arises. And, 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 and so that's, so there's some great books on this style of leadership that I call collaborative leadership. And in the, in the literature, it's called transformational leadership. Um, but uh, there's some great books um, like The Discipline of Teams and The Wisdom of Teams. And those authors actually say that if there's a single leader, that's not a real team. That's a bogus team because that's like the old way of doing things, that, that only self-managed teams are real teams. And leadership always arises in the group. But again, that works great for our postmodern friends. But for our friends that work in the corporate world that are all about make money, everything's a transaction, winning and losing, everything's about playing chess on a chessboard, they would, for them, leadership is the person with the most expertise then makes the recommendation, science, technology, you know, and then makes the recommendation and we follow the person who's the leader is the one who's most qualified. The expert is the leader because we want to follow somebody who knows where they're going and what they're doing. And that's more of a modern view, that's strategic leadership. And, and so, and that has its place. It's very effective uh, for winning and being competitive and being innovative and developing a meritocracy and creating a very high performance organization. You need some of that strategic leadership. Right. But it'd be great if you could weave in a little collaborative leadership. But it's also true that people that have a traditional worldview, traditional family values, you know, um, kind of a parental mentality. There's a there there's there's the, the authoritarian leader that's like the parent and then there's the children and everybody has to obey him or her. And it's usually a him. So that style of leadership, authoritarian leadership is actually very, very popular with 40 percent of the population. And about half of the, the voting population in the U.S. prefer authoritarian leadership. And that's how we got to where we are today, because a lot of people want an authoritarian leader who doesn't admit they're wrong, who never shows fear, and who says they know the way, and who's going to basically be a strong man, you know, against their common, you know, enemies or whatever. So there is a style of authoritarian leadership that is very popular. And also autocratic leadership, uh, which is, you know, we're very familiar with that because it's 
actually being used a lot today. So there's four main views of leadership based upon who's looking. <laughs> so there's an autocratic leadership, there's authoritarian leadership, there's strategic leadership, and there's collaborative leadership. Many of our viewers prefer collaborative leadership, but the thing is we prefer to be led by collaborative leaders. But there are many people that, that work in our companies that actually prefer strategic leadership or even authoritarian leadership, and in some cases, autocratic leadership. And without getting too political, most Trump voters actually like autocratic and authoritarian leadership. They see that strong leader and they gravitate toward it. Some of us are like, whoa, we prefer strategic leadership or collaborative leadership. This whole autocratic leadership and authoritarian leadership is kind of off-putting. So what's very interesting to me, obviously I'm a student of leadership theory, what's very interesting to me is leadership, leadership is in the eye of the one being led. The follower is who defines leadership. It's how do they want to be influenced? And some people want to be influenced with autocratic, authoritarian, strategic, or collaborative. Not everybody wants to be influenced with collaborative leadership. You and I tend to prefer collaborative leadership with a little dash of strategic expert expertise and being, you know, strategic and all that. But again, we have to just accept that many of our brothers and sisters in Austin, in Texas, in the U.S. and other parts of the world gravitate toward other styles of leadership that aren't necessarily our favorite. But at the end of the day, I think what's even more fundamental is who are our stakeholders? Who do we count for us? Who do we account in we? And what are the needs? And what, you know, what do they care about? And how do we want to serve our stakeholders? And it's, it's, a very, it's very rich. It, you can't really have a, 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 any kind of nuanced, intelligent conversation about leadership without getting into psychology and, and worldviews and value systems. And so it's very rich and it's very deep. But at the end of the day, who, who are our stakeholders and how do we want to help them? And yeah. what can we do to help? And how do we want to influence? And how do they want to be influenced? I think that's important. And it really seems like in the world we live in, where we're not talking about homogenous populations in terms of the workforce. So, you know, if you're a business owner, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, you probably have a mixed team. Your employees probably range all over the place in terms of exactly. what kind, how they want to be led. You may have a team where there's someone who prefers an autocratic leadership, someone who prefers a collaborative style. And so, you know, what really occurs to me is that this is a very nuanced approach. And often we see leaders project their own stuff onto their companies, onto their teams, and you have the employees projecting their values onto the, the company and on the culture scape of the company. And we're just seeing a, a, a clash of frames, which just leads to chaos. And what is really required is awareness, its presence. And all of this maps back to psychology, because unless there is a certain level of self-awareness, unless there's a level of emotional intelligence, social intelligence, and understanding of human dynamics and human behavior, a leader can't really understand the nuances of what's required of them. They don't know when to turn with style on and with style off. They don't know when to step into 
being the strategic leader, when to step into being the collaborative leader as in a kind of responsive, intelligent dance with the people that they're leading. Because this is a conversation, right? This is not a monolithic structure that's built that's and right. erected and not touched for you know 30 years as the company grows. But this is a constant dialogue. It's constantly in flux. It's constantly changing. How does the idea of stakeholders appear to you? And how have you seen this influence leadership styles? Well, one thing that comes to mind as a jumping off point is one of the common things that some of my CEO clients would, would say over the years of being a management consultant and an executive coach is I would have CEOs who were strategic leadership style CEOs. You know, it's a chessboard and they're playing chess and they're trying to win. You know, that's how they're thinking of it. And they would often say to me, my employees, a lot of them are millennials, they're not motivated. I can't understand, they're not motivated. And I would say, oh boy, are you ever wrong? They're motivated. They're just not motivated by you. And they're not motivated by the same things that motivate you. And they would be saying, I offer them incentives. I show them how they can get stock options. I explain to them how we're going to crush the competition and dominate the industry. And we're going to be number one. And they're just not motivated. They're not motivated people. I'm like, it's interesting because they're spending a lot of time updating their Facebook page and their social media and their blog. And a lot of them go home and spend hours playing video games in the case of millennials and so on. They're highly motivated. They're just not motivated the same way you are. And they're like, huh. And so I often say, those people that think just like you, that have the same value system, that have the same exact worldview, do you think they're motivated? Yeah, they're really motivated by my, you know, well, that's because they're motivated in the same way. But so this is to your point, if leaders, if leaders make the mistake of thinking that everybody thinks just like they do, and, and, and including entrepreneurs and business owners, if we make the mistake of thinking everybody has the same values that we do and are motivated the same way, care about all the same things and the same priority, which is what values are, then that's a very big mistake. I mean, that's a very uh, kind of narrow-minded, almost an egocentric view. Everybody thinks just like me. Well, no, they don't. You know, There's all these different ways. So I think, I think that it's very helpful for us to think, what is it that they need? What is it that they care about? And what motivates them? You know, and, 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 and by the way, there's, I've written extensively and a lot of people have written about motivation. Motivation actually is a lot less complex than it seems. It really boils down to what people value, what people care about. And some people, for example, a lot of millennials, and I don't want to be overly stereotypical here, but a lot of young people in the workforce, more so than boomers, um, actually care as much or more about enjoying their work and learning and growing in their careers and enjoying the people they work with more than the pay. So they, there's a saying, meaning is the new money. And so we just have to understand what people care about. One thing that's useful to think about what motivates people is this frame that, that I've used for a long time called their multiple forms of compensation. And money is only one form of compensation. Let's call that financial compensation uh, with our stakeholders. Another form of compensation is psychological compensation. Am I learning and growing? And that's very important to a lot of people in the workplace, especially the younger generation. Another form of compensation is emotional compensation. Do I actually enjoy myself at work? Do I enjoy 
the states and the experiences and the emotions I experience in working, social compensation. Do I actually like the people that I work with? And then do I enjoy do I enjoy coming to work and, and being with these people and teaming with these, that social compensation? And lastly, is spiritual compensation. Does what I do matter? At the end of the day, is there any meaning here? Does it matter at all? And I think that as leaders, as entrepreneurs, as team members, um, I think it's very important to consider who are our stakeholders, who are the people that are impacted by what I do and that, that I'm impacted by what they do. Who are the stakeholders? And that's a big part of conscious capitalism is the stakeholder-centric model. And what are their needs? And what are their values? What do they care about? What motivates them? And it, to your point, if as entrepreneurs and leaders and consultants and coaches and team members, if we take the time to listen and pay attention and ask people what's important to them and what they care about and why is that important, then they will tell you what is important to them. And the very simple, the, the most simple explanation of motivation is values is what motivate people. Needs and values. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that motivates people. And, and once those needs are met, that stops motivating them until the need stops being met. And so needs framework is useful, but the most helpful framework is values. What do people care about? What do they value? And whatever they value, that's what motivates them. And so understanding what motivates people, assuming that we're conscious leaders and we're not trying to motivate and influence people against their own interests. We're trying to motivate and influence people toward common shared needs and values and interests for the, for the greater good. And that is one of the differences between conscious leadership and non-conscious leadership. Then we want to understand what their needs are and what their values are. And then certainly we want to influence and motivate, enroll, encourage them to join us in moving in the same direction toward creating something awesome, whether that be a joint venture partnership or working toward a team goal or building a culture and a company. Um, but I think the stakeholder centric model is very, very important. You asked about that. And that's one of the defining uh, differences between what I call sharecropper capitalism, exploitive capitalism only money matters capitalism, despite all its flaws, has brought more people and, 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 and countries out of poverty than any other system. So capitalism itself, despite how exploitive it is, and, and the current version of capitalism is to a large degree sharecropper capitalism, where most of the benefits go to the top 1% and none of the benefits go to the rest other than they have a job. Now, that's sharecropper capitalism, but as much as we can be critical of old-style capitalism and how exploitive it is, it has raised more people. My colleague, John Mackey, who wrote the book Conscious Capitalism, points out, it's, and he's a libertarian, but if he points out that, hey, capitalism has brought more people out of poverty than anything, faster than anything. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the, the, the exploitive form of capitalism where whoever owns the company, the shareholders who own the company, they get all the benefits. And the only benefit everybody get, else gets is they have a job. Job creators, wink, wink, not really. But, but so, yes, it brought, brought a lot of people out of poverty. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I respect capitalism as a system. But as it stands, only the top 1% are benefiting. And the rest, are they have a job. But they're just sharecroppers. 
there, it's sharecropper capitalism. It's like when slavery ended and then all those people became sharecroppers. They weren't really free. There was just a new form of slavery called wage slavery. And that we've all, we're, uh, unless you're a multimillionaire, we're all uh, wage slaves until you, until you have a multimillion dollar balance sheet. Up until that point, we're still busting our ass to get ahead. And most of the benefits go to the top 1%. Now, the good news is this is changing quickly. And so many people have adopted the, sh the, the stakeholder model instead of the shareholder model. So there are shareholders, and they need to get a return on their investment, of course. And they took certain risk, and they should get a return on investment. Um, but we have stakeholders, and our employees are stakeholders. Our value chain, our supply chain are stakeholders. The environment in which we run, our businesses, the community, uh, they're all and, – and the family members of the employees and the people in our – they're all – and the, the environment and the planet is also a stakeholder. So when we take a stakeholder-centric view – it's a more conscious view, even from developmental psychology point of view, because an egocentric view is the only thing that matters are me and my shareholders. And I'm going to screw everybody, including my employees. So that's an egocentric capitalism. An ethnocentric capitalism is people that share my, uh, you know, uh, religious orientation or my ethnic background or color of skin or whatever, or, you know, uh, political, you know, they're part of the we, but everything else, screw them. So that's ethnocentric capitalism. But a, but a, but a stakeholder-centric approach to capitalism, what we call conscious capitalism, is let's try not to screw anybody. I mean, sure, we want to be successful and be successful in our industry and be one of our industry leaders, but we don't want to hurt anybody along the way. And so we want to try to use our creativity to create more value. And that's stakeholder-centric capitalism, and that, that's conscious capitalism. And more and more, and here's the crazy thing. It has now been proven, although some people have a hard time grasping this, that being stakeholder-centric and caring about your supply chain and your employees and their families and the environment, over the long haul, the value of your company is far more. Your market capitalization, the value of your stock, the people who want to do business with you, you actually make more money in the long run when you don't focus on money as the primary goal in the long run. But that's over five to 10 years. There's still plenty of people that are like, I can make more money this year if I don't give my uh, people, my employees fair pay and I rely on government subsidies and welfare because I'm not going to pay my employees. Walmart comes to mind and Amazon. They have they have they have um, socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. That's the reality. That's sharecropper capitalism. But if we if we look at it as a stakeholder centric model, let's 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 try to, you know, benefit everybody. You actually make more money in the long run. And so this has been the argument for the last 20 years for um, conscious capitalism. And now it's been proven. There's a book um, called Firms of Endearment. Uh, written by Raj Hastodia, who's the who's the co-author of the book Conscious Capitalism, that shows uh, without a shadow of a doubt a conscious capitalism approach, a shareholder, a stakeholder approach instead of a shareholder approach, actually creates more value in the long run. And so my uh, former business partner and dear friend, Phil Ramstegen of the Stegen Leadership Academy, talks about a long-term view, de being a decader versus just thinking in terms of this year. 
and exploiting and making as much profit as you can in one year. If you become a decader, as he says, you think about long term. In the end, everybody wins when we take a more a more conscious approach. So that was my little soapbox pitch for the you know for conscious capitalism. But what what how does that land with you? And how do you think that lands with a lot of your listeners and viewers? Yeah, that's the Dr. Bronner's soapbox, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> to use an example of, you know, conscious capitalism. So, you know, I think this is a, a super relevant conversation and it provides us a really great segue into the theme of crisis because, you know, there's a couple of things that jump out to me. One, just because there's a crisis outside doesn't mean that there has to be a crisis inside. And two, when we take a long-term view of business, which I would think that, you know, business and entrepreneurship is a long-term game. Some people take a short-term approach to it, but it's actually only profitable. If you take startup costs, if you take the amount of time it, create, it takes to create a brand, the time it takes to reach a certain level of market, um, you know, saturation where you're known, you're recognized, and you have prospects and leads coming to you rather than you needing to go out and fish every single day. Um, the curve all only becomes easy a few years in. And when you take a long-term approach to business, then it makes sense because, you know, the first few years are, they feel like an uphill battle and you're, you're as an entrepreneur, you're literally creating something out of nothing. You're doing something that, you know, other people either aren't willing to do or they haven't thought to do or they don't feel brave enough or resource to do. And a few years in is when you start getting traction, right? These days that curve is shortened and you can launch a business on the internet pretty quickly and you can, you know, call yourself an entrepreneur and, and get going. But, you know, 92% of entrepreneurs fail within the first 18 months. That's so, right. you know, those people are quickly irrelevant, especially, you know, in this time of crisis, most people, most most entrepreneurs don't even have the the cash reserves to sustain you know a couple of months of operating expenses. So a long term view is the only viable view when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to business, which is a perfect backdrop to look at what looks to be a time of crisis, right? Which is a very short term view, because when we look at the short term, yes, it seems like everything is falling apart. Right. Yes, it looks That's like. Right. You know, the market's down, we're at the, we're in a recession. Um, I think it was declared, you know, on a global scale. We have small businesses that were dependent on foot traffic that are closed. There's unemployment um, levels that are record high. You have people, you know, exiting and being available for the labor force, you know, at staggering levels. You know, the, the metrics all point to this being a crisis. Yet, when we take a long-term view of the business, of business in general, things may look different. So a question that almost, you know, no entrepreneur is probably asking is, what's my 10-year vision? Where do I want to be in 2030, right? Because this can be a crisis or an opportunity depending on what consciousness you're operating with. That's right. That's so. How are you seeing this crisis and how do you see some of the themes that, you know, we've covered in this conversation matrixing in with this lens of crisis or opportunity? 
We were talking, I think, before we started the call about that uh, Jesus Jones song, Right Here, Right Now, There's No Place I'd Rather Be, Watching the World Wake Up From History. And there are many of us, many of us in the conscious community um, that have this sense, and I don't expect it to be all of your listeners, but many of your listeners have this weird feeling, because I've talked to a lot of people in our shared community, and there's this weird feeling like, Somehow, I kind of believe that I was supposed to be part of this transition. Somehow, I feel a certain calling that I'm part of this transition. I'm a transformational. I'm, I, I almost feel like my life has led to this moment where like, this is kind of mine to do to step into this. This is a, now not everybody has this feeling, granted, but many of our, our mutual friends have this feeling that I was born for this. Well, what is this? Well, if you study sociology or you know, long-term anthropology history, I have many friends that are in all those fields and history professors and so on. And if you look at how, how human culture has evolved over the last you know, even 3,000 years, but 5,000, 10,000 years, but even just the last couple of thousand years, okay? There's a very clear progression. And when, when we were in the hunter-gatherer mode, you know, and then we moved into the agrarian, that was like a major crisis. There was a, a lot of change. I mean, just, you know, we weren't there, but we, can, we know from movies and history, think about the Middle Ages. And, when, and, and the feudal kingdoms of the Middle Ages. I mean, a lot of our favorite movies and TV shows are set in those time periods. So we're familiar with the Middle Ages where you had feudal kings and serfs and peasants and the, you know, the, the wealthy, okay? Well, if you, if you look from the Middle Ages uh, when the great nation states and the Roman Empire came about and then the, the, the big monotheist, monotheistic traditions, the patriarchal, religious traditions. There's one way. And, and this whole idea of there's a nation state and there's one way and there's all these things. That was a big shift going from hunter-gatherer and the feudal kingdoms and then the nation states and the Roman Empire through the Middle Ages. And then what happened? The historical enlightenment, right? And the, the, the Renaissance and the shift into out of, out of the uh, the Middle Ages, if you will, into the science, the age of science and Newtonian physics. And that opened the door for what? The industrial age. And then you had the robber king barons that all the banks are named after uh, in the U.S. And then you had the industrialists, right? And the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the, the Chases and all of these folks, right? And so like, you know, all these things started. Well, that then went on for a while. And then another big turning happened. The 60s happened. And then the, the age of the computer science came in along with postmodernism. And so if you think about the shift from the 1950s, and one of my friends uh, is still alive today, uh, Rennie Davis, he was part of the Chicago 7. He, he, he was one of the biggest um, creators of the protest in the 60s. And he he and I have talked extensively about what that was like. If you think about the 1950s and the, the show Mad Men, if you're not sure what that was like, right? The 1950s and the early 60s, think about, or, you know, um, let's talk about like, you know, Leave it to Beaver and, you know, that whole 1950s vibe. 
in a decade, the 60s came through and people are taking acid and having free love and, and, you know, having a whole different set of values. Well, that's when postmodern values came in and postmodern consciousness. And that's the techno-economic side tracks with the consciousness side. So when, when we went from traditional thinking, black and white thinking, to postmodern thinking, and we, we went in from science and merely science to systems theory and chaos theory and, and, and postmodern philosophy, what happened? Look at what happened in the culture, but also computer science came in. So that was a huge change. The 60s, was a, that was the last time we had one of these big changes. All right. And so that was a, it's been a while. All right. Well, now we're in the equivalent of a second 60s. So according to most of people who study this, this is number six or seven. All right. When you go back throughout human recorded human history. So we haven't seen the change like what's happening right now. Like the Jesus Jones song, Waking Up From History. The last time this happened was in the 60s. And the time before that was when we moved into the industrial age or the age of science from the Middle Ages. And the time before that was when we went from hunter-gatherers into feudal kingdoms and nation states. This is a pretty big deal. <laughs> and so, and so this, this first wave of change, that's the virus, is only chapter one. There's at least a dozen major waves of change that are going to be coming in the next five to 10 years. This is just the shot across the bow. But th what this forces us to do is go into our homes and work in a digital economy and work remotely and work over, you know, from within our homes. We're all using all these different uh, technologies. And for those people that were still in the industrial age where there was, uh, they were relying on foot traffic there's a, a reset happening that will come back. You know, we're not going to work from our homes forever, but it's forcing a giant percentage of the population to adopt a new techno economic way of being, which is working via computers, just like the industrial age took people off the farms and into the factories. That's happening. It's a big deal. And we're alive to witness it and to be a part of it. And so as entrepreneurs, as leaders, as, 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 as people that are longer term thinkers that aren't just thinking 2020, we're thinking 2030, there's unbelievable opportunities. And while it's going to be hard and, and due to climate change, and there will be entire climate change migrations, and entire cities will be underwater in the next 10, 20 years. And entire climates will be inhabitable, uninhabitable. And, and the lower, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff coming. But look throughout history. A lot of bad stuff happened. And large percentage of the population did face um, illness. And, and, and so uh, that's very bad. And there'll be a lot of suffering. But just like those examples that I've cited, just look at history, y'all. You don't have to be a historian or a rocket science to look at history. It's obvious to anybody who has eyes to see it. We're moving into a whole new techno-economic phase of history and a whole new cultural phase of history and a whole new level of consciousness. It's one level of consciousness above in terms of developmental psychology and integral theory from the level of consciousness that came in in the 60s. That's very cool. 
And so the whole, it's amazing. So I'm more excited because I'm thinking long-term than I am worried. But at the same time, a lot of people are going to suffer uh, and we have to learn and we have to change and we have to become more local and eat more locally and grow more food locally and support our local. We, we went from global, but now we have to kind of come back to local cooperating with the global, but not buying everything across seas, you know, because there's good and bad with everything. The pendulum keeps swinging as, as progress happens. So I'm very excited about it. And to, to your point earlier about what we talked about, our stakeholders. Well, our stakeholders include our neighbors and they include the farmers in our community and they include the workers. And what this is, this reset is forcing us to do is realize all the the exploitive capitalism types that really control Wall Street and use the military industrial complex as a money laundering scheme to take tax dollars from the lower and the middle class and just pump it into, you know, million dollar missiles that are dropped, you know, onto tents in the desert. And that money then goes to Wall Street, which goes back to the billionaire psychopaths that and all the wealthy families, that whole system. But we're creating jobs. Not so much. Who really creates jobs? If people can't go to work for one month, the whole economy stalls. So really, we have to rethink who are the job creators. And I think it's the small businesses and it's the workers. And the very people that a lot of people argue don't deserve $15 an hour are the people that we're now relying on. The people delivering our food, the people, you know, all these things. So I think that this, this is a big reset. And while there will be a lot of suffering, it's going to it's going to cause humanity and all the different stakeholders with all the different worldviews and value systems to rethink what it means to be a community, what it means to have an economy, what it means uh, to be a good Samaritan and to care for your neighbor. And and is our neighbor only people that vote the way we do or that share our sexual orientation or go to the same church we go to? Or can we can we have some common needs and values of being human that transcend our differences? And I do think that it's these big resets that are very painful and very difficult and cause entire industries to go out of business, just like throughout history, but it, it, it creates huge opportunities. So while I have a sober view of, of some of all the suffering that is likely to be coming our way with all these massive changes and the lessons that we have to learn, I'm very optimistic about what's possible, especially those of us that think of us as ourselves as conscious, as creative, as entrepreneurs. The sky's the limit. There's a lot of need, and we get to decide what we want to do with it. And speaking of what we want to do with it and what we can do with it, you know, there's some questions that we can ask ourselves as leaders there's some questions we need to ask ourselves as leaders to really fine-tune this perspective, to shift our consciousness, to really respond rather than react, to go from fear and panic and you know contraction to a kind of expansion that allows for growth, right? That that fundamental shift. So let's talk about the three questions that someone who's listening can can actionably practically ask themselves in times of crisis to create the shifts that may define their their present and their future yeah so these three questions uh i found myself using uh with uh, leaders in, in the corporate world 
over the years, and we we had to we had to come up with some uh, acceptable answer to each of these three questions in order to know what to do in any given situation. And these are especially relevant in crisis. But these are three questions that we can all ask ourselves, even if we're just the leader of our family or our neighborhood you know, community group and we're, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And so there's three questions. The first, there's like three layers that get progressively more concrete and specific. So the first question is what's really happening? And this is a scan of the environment. What's really happening? And we want to go beneath the surface of the tip of the iceberg. So instead of just what's happening, oh, well, this person's just, you know, misbehaving or it's the government or it's this or that. That's too simple of an answer. It's not thorough enough. So we want to just, we don't want to just ask what's happening. We want to ask what's really happening. Hmm. We want to read between the lines. And we want to consider the context and the circumstances we find ourselves in through our different stakeholders' eyes. What's happening for them? What's happening for them? What's happening for them? What's happening for us and me? So what's, what's really happening? And there's different dimensions. There's a, there's a physical dimension. There's a psychological dimension. There's an economic or a systems dimension. There's a cultural dimension. So we can really look at what's really happening through a few different lenses. Then we have at least a slightly more adequate grasp of, of what's really happening, of the circumstance. So that's the first level. That's the first question. The second question has two parts, kind of an A and B, two A and two B. And, th and the first part is, is, is what is most important? What's most important? So there's a lot of things that are important, but what's most important? And that invokes values of the stakeholders. What's most important to me? What's most important to you, to, to our loved ones, to our other stakeholders? What's most important? So that's values. And that goes back to the earlier part of the conversation of what motivates people is what's important to them. What motivates people is their values. So if we ask ourselves what's most important, we're, we're, we're invoking the most important values. And that also tells us what's going to motivate people, which is very helpful in the role of leaders. Part B to that question is what's needed. And that invokes needs. And it's values and needs that motivate people. So what's important, what's most important, and what's needed. So we said, what's really happening? And we explored that for a moment or two. This could be over five or 15 minutes, or it could be five seconds if you have to make a quick decision. But so this is telescopable. What's really happening? What's important? And what's needed? What's most important and what's needed? And so that's that next layer. Now, now we're, we're much better off to, to, to slip into that gap before we react. So now we can respond to your point. And then the third question that we like to ask that's been very, very useful for us is, what's the most helpful action I can take now? So what's really happening? What's most important? What's needed? What's the most helpful action I can take now? And so the key idea here is helpful. And so if you've looked at the environmental scan of what's happening, and you've tried to look a little deeper beneath the surface and read between the lines and consider the different stakeholders, and then you've looked at what's, what's important, what's most important and what's needed, now you can answer the question, what's helpful, better, right? And you're gonna come up with a better answer to that question, what's helpful for the situation and the stakeholders? And what's the most helpful action I can take? And then it comes back to what's mine to do, right? 
And sometimes as a leader, the most helpful action I can take is track everything really carefully, but wait and let the situation ripen a little bit. We don't always need to jump right in and take action. Sometimes we, if we're observing carefully, the most helpful action I can take is to keep my mouth shut and to let someone else lead. But if there is something, some action I can take that would be helpful, then we can take that action. And really, you know, this really highlights the difference between reacting and responding, because to really respond, we need to have the right context, right? And most people, they focus on the content rather than the context. And what I love about those questions is that the first two yeah. questions really establish the context we're operating in. Exactly. What is, the, what is the context that we need to really keep in mind before we respond with content, whether it's a thing we say, it's an email we send, it's a video we create, it's a public response, it's a broadcast, it's a decision, it's a pivot in the business, it's you know a tactical strategic shift and we have no business making decisions if we don't have the full picture, if we don't have the full context. And, you know, I often find that, you know, what separates entrepreneurs, leaders who have some level of success, but then keep running into trouble or keep getting stuck. And those who really build, you know, inspiring, high impact, high performing companies and teams is that they wait to, to respond, they don't react, they wait to have the context and they ask questions, they get curious, right? They ask questions like what's really happening because they're curious about what's really happening because what appears on the surface may not be what's actually underneath the surface. Brett, this has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I can't wait to continue this soon. It's been a real pleasure to have you here on the show and for people to really hear, you know, your message and your wisdom and, and your work um, and, you know, what you shared around the idea of conscious leadership and conscious business that I really want to underscore is that this isn't really just the right thing to do, but it's also right for your bottom line. It's also right from a revenue perspective, from a profit perspective. So if you're the kind of entrepreneur who's looking to make, you know, the most um, impact in your community who's looking to do the right thing and who's looking to maximize value for all the stakeholders, including your bottom line, then thinking about leadership and business and entrepreneurship from a conscious perspective is really the best thing you can do. Brett, please share where people can find you, where people can find your work and follow you. Yeah, so uh, I'm in the process. So I, I sold the Leadership Academy uh, not too long ago, and we're actually building a a platform uh, whose purpose is to empower the change agents that are building the new society. And then this happened, so it's like a good thing I had a couple of years head start. Um, but much of that is still emergent. But if you're if you're interested in in what I do, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Brett Thomas. It's LinkedIn slash Conscious Business Coach is my um, my little moniker there on on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, and I would say we're we are um, we have a social venture fund um, that's a couple years old now, and we're we're building this. But um, my overall the kind of um, overall company now is called Conscious Ventures, and we're rolling out uh, conscious publishers, conscious technology, conscious media, um, conscious academy, 
And so the idea is to really support the change agents building the new society. And so uh, more to come. We're, we're, um, we're going to be rolling several things out this spring. So we'll have a lot more uh, to show you. I've got a few little one-page websites up, but there's not a whole lot there at this point. But we are going to be rolling out. In fact, some of the, a lot of the work that we've been doing over the, over the last couple of decades are going to be put out in the form of books under Conscious Publishers later this year. So much more coming. Um, and I'm very interested in promoting um, one, of our, one of our brands is Conscious Broadcasting and supporting things like this and podcasts and so on. So if any of this rings a bell, look me up on Facebook, uh, look me up on LinkedIn, stay in touch, and uh, more, more to be announced this spring. We've got some big, big stuff happening that we've been working on and building the, the foundation for. So thank you for asking. Beautiful. We'll have you back on the show then to hear about what you've been up to and what you're about to launch. So thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure, and I can't wait to speak soon. Yeah, good to be with you, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you found value, please consider leaving a five-star review to allow the show to reach more people or share this episode via your social media channels. If you're an entrepreneur and want support in exponentially scaling your business, email me at ani at animanian.com. <music>